0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, July 15th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with recurring guest co-host Dan Walsh. Nick isn't around right now, but he will be back soon. Dano, how goes it? It's going well, man. Honored to be here as always. Happy to have you back. I just got back from the dentist, and uh, yeah, this (laughs) is much more fun, better use of my time. (laughs) It went well. They said I had great teeth, so uh, no complaints today, but yeah it's still not looking forward to the next six month checkup
1: my least favorite place maybe on earth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right let's do this thing today we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday
1: and Friday. Time for this week's quick hits. The first one is by Carrie Gillum of The Guardian, who writes, quote, disturbing weed killer ingredient tied to cancer found in 80 percent of U.S. urine samples.
0: That is, in fact, disturbing. So Nick and I spoke about microplastics being found in human blood back in early May, and now Dan is here for part two, the (laughs) long-awaited sequel, where the CDC finds glyphosate, which is a controversial ingredient found in weed killers like Roundup, in, like Dan said, 80% of human urine samples. Scientists have called this both disturbing and concerning, and I am here as a non-scientist to say I agree.
1: Yeah, so... The CDC sampled 2,310 urine samples and found detectable levels of glyphosate in 1,885 of them. Almost a third of the samples taken were from children between the ages of 6 and 18.
0: A significant random sample is usually around a 1,000 people. So look, this is really alarming news. This is definitely considered statistically significant. And the CDC has been studying this for years. Recently, they started testing the extent of this issue. So this report comes at a time of mounting concerns and controversy over how pesticides in food and water impact human and environmental health. Leanne Shepard, a professor at the University of Washington's Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Sciences, says, We know that a large fraction of the population has it in urine. Many people will be thinking about whether that includes them. Dr. Shepard's 2019 research found that glyphosate exposure increases the risk of non-Hodgkin lymphoma.
1: This is a direct quote from the article that we wanted to make sure listeners hear. Quote, more than 200 million pounds of glyphosate are used annually by U.S. farmers on their fields. The weed killer is sprayed directly over genetically engineered crops such as corn and soybeans and also over non-genetically engineered crops such as wheat and oats and as a desiccant to dry crops out prior to harvest. Many farmers also use it on fields before the growing season, including spinach growers and almond producers.
0: Glyphosate residue has even been found in baby food. And look, I mean, if the the paragraph before isn't kind of saying, hey, this probably isn't great. Glyphosate is considered the most widely used herbicide in history. So its residue is really going to get everywhere and research has now found that the amount of glyphosate found in human urine and the prevalence of exposure have both increased steadily since the 1990s, when Monsanto company introduced crops genetically engineered that were designed to be sprayed with their Roundup. Monsanto and Bayer, which is owned by Monsanto, maintain that glyphosate and Roundup products are safe and that any residues in food and
1: human urine are nothing to worry about. On the other hand, the International Agency for the Research on Cancer, which is a unit of the World Health Organization, classified glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen in 2015. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency sided with Monsanto classifying glyphosate as not likely to be carcinogenic.
0: Luckily, last month, the federal appeals court issued an opinion vacating the agency's safety determination and actually ordered the EPA to give further consideration to evidence of glyphosate risks. So, I don't know, maybe this is just me, maybe this is a lot of the listeners too, but I think if the World Health Organization says one thing, and then a company trying to sell a product that the World Health Organization says not to, is like, no, don't listen to them, we're good, we're good. I'm probably going to side with the World Health Organization, but I don't know, Dan, you tell me.
1: No, I mean, this is just uh, such a there's so many layers to this that you could like delve into. Um, This is just the classic problem in environmental engineering. One component is just remediation. And it feels Mm -hmm. like every like five ish, maybe even less, maybe a little bit more. There's like a new chemical that is like the study of how it's all over our environment. It's polluting it, whether it's carcinogenic or not, it's like needs to be removed and it's not an easy task. It takes very long time to remove anything, any of these chemicals is very difficult to remove. It's just so expensive, like it's just such a problem. And it makes me wonder all the time, like we always think back 50 years or something and be like, oh my God, how are people, whatever, eating this, drinking mm-hmm. out of this and like uh, living around radiation or something. And I could just promise that where there's so many things, maybe it's microplastics, like all this stuff that we, is in our environment that is harmful to our health. And we are probably just ignorant to so much of it, yeah. right? Now, which is scary to think about.
0: Yeah. It's a really good point. Cause you just think about, you know, microplastics like we talked about or herbicides, insecticides, they are so commonly used everywhere. And it's not like an herbicide is sprayed and goes, all right, I am only going to impact this one crop. Anything else that that touches me, not even going to do anything. Like it it gets into the areas, it gets into the water supply, it gets into the soil, it impacts the environment and not just the areas that you spray. So yeah, I mean, you think about the larger ramifications of of using a product like Roundup or really any herbicide that has glyphosate in it. I I wonder what we're going to look at in 10 years and say, damn like how were we accepting that as normal and and yeah. frankly this is probably one of them
1: yeah no and this one yeah wide ranging very used frequently so mm-hmm. sad to see it all right the next quick hit is titled quote biden administration signal support for a controversial alaska oil project by lisa friedman of the new york times
0: The Biden administration took steps towards approving an oil drilling project in Alaska's North Slope, which environmentalists called, quote, a mockery of President Biden's climate change promise to end new oil leases. The Willow Project, as it's called, is located in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska and was approved under the Trump administration before being supported by the Biden administration and then ultimately blocked by a judge who said that the environmental impacts were not sufficiently considered. Last Friday, the Biden administration's new analysis said that the multi-billion dollar project would produce more than 180,000 barrels of oil per day and would emit 278 million metric tons of CO2 over its lifetime. Project opponents have argued that the development would harm wildlife and produce dangerous new levels of greenhouse gases.
1: The Interior Department said that the new analysis included several options, including a reduction in the number of drilling sites as well as an option for no drilling at all. The department did not provide a final decision on the Willow Project. The agency will take comments from the public for 45 days and is likely to make a final decision later this year.
0: So this announcement comes as President Biden seeks to show voters that he's working to increase domestic oil supply as prices surge in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden ran on ending new federal oil and gas leasing to get younger voters and other voters who are concerned about climate change on board with his agenda. So this goes directly against his campaign pledge to those groups, of which I would say I am a member of both. (laughs) I'm a young voter who cares about climate change. This is a little double whammy for me. The project is a priority of Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who is considered a moderate Republican and is frequently the most likely senator to break with her party and support Democratic appointees and policy compromises, according to this article. So Murkowski wants construction to begin this winter, and she is siding with Kanoko Phillips, which is the Willow Project's owner, and saying this is going to create employment opportunities for union labor And contribute to local tax
1: revenue. The author writes, "Quote: Over the last sixty years, Alaska has warmed more than twice as fast as the rest of the United States. Arctic ecosystems are in disarray. Sea ice is disappearing. Sea levels are rising, and the ground is thawing."
0: Yeah, this one's just pretty disappointing to me. I mean, it was a pretty solid campaign pledge, in my opinion, to say, "Look, climate change is a big deal. We're going to recognize that. We're going to invest in solar energy. We're going to invest in." wind energy we're going to invest in geothermal we're going to start to phase out of fossil fuels like those are all smart decisions both politically morally environmentally and economically and to see him kind of go back on this pledge and say hey we know that over the long term it's going to cost us more money if we start drilling now but we really need to start drilling now and and i get it i mean Mm. the price of oil is high but is this really going to is this really going to pay off when you look, you know, twenty years down the road and say, "Damn, we should have invested those multi-billion dollars into clean energy programs, or electric vehicle chargers, or subsidies into helping people get electric vehicles"? I just, I don't see this as the best use of our money.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I saw, I forget the exact time, but I saw something that, like, when you, you don't just like flip a switch and the oil starts coming. Like, obviously, it's a very immediate need right now. Yeah. So I know that there is like literally years before these projects like really kind of start producing oil at the levels that we need kind of right now. Yeah, I so. think
0: it's two to three years. I, I remember Ooh. reading something very similar. Okay. So, so something that a friend of mine on Twitter, uh, J Bone Fan Club, if you're listening, thanks for bringing <laughs> this up last time. Uh, he He brought up, you know, maybe this could impact futures by saying we can lower the price of oil now knowing that we have more oil coming down the pipeline. That's something I didn't consider. Um, But I would add that I don't know if that's the case. And I think that in in something like this, it's Mm. kind of just an optics thing to say, Hey, look, Mm. we're getting more oil. You can lower the price. And Mm. even though it's going to come back to bite us in the ass 20 years later, when we don't have as much renewable energy capacity because we dumped Mm. billions of dollars into this, So, I don't know. I mean, that that very well could lower the price. But like you're saying, the oil that's potentially going to come from Willow is not going to impact, you know.
1: Yeah, anytime soon, really. Like that, I know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Our next story is from the Plastic Soup Foundation and is titled, quote, Around 80% of cow and pig meat, blood and milk contains plastic. It's the latest
0: episode of plastic bad here on tpt a new study from the vraia university of amsterdam found feed pellets and shredded feed to contain plastics which then gets into the byproducts of animal agriculture so we're talking your meats your dairies your cheeses your yogurts it's it's gonna get into all of those no contamination was found in fresh food that was given to the animals so there's a little uh Well, silver lining here.
1: Yeah, so this was a small sample size with only 25 milk samples, eight pork samples, eight beef samples, and 12 feed pellets and shredded feed samples each. Still, Maria Westerbos, the director of the Plastic Soup Foundation, says this raises serious concerns about the contamination of our food chain with microplastics.
0: Ecotoxicologist Dr. Heather Leslie, who is actually the co-author of this study, said animals are capable of absorbing at least some of the plastic particles they're exposed to in their habitat. And this study should encourage further investigation into the full extent of exposure and any associated risks. She added producing plastic-free feed for animals may be one way to improve exposure to plastic particles for livestock. Um, just want to touch on this briefly because like we said, this is a small sample size. This isn't something where you can go and say, wow, every single plastic (laughs) that's given to an animal we end up eating this is again it's a very small sample but Mm -hmm. the results are alarming enough where hopefully someone will be able to conduct this sort of research on a much much larger scale
1: yeah i mean this is this ties into the first quick hit where it's just like so pervasive mm-hmm. almost like uh, it's scary really <laughs> it's weird to think
0: about just how much plastic we probably consume on a daily basis and how many chemicals we ingest on a daily basis and No, yeah. i don't know man it's, it's not exactly fun to think about it
1: yeah it's
0: crazy all right we are gonna take a quick break and when we get back we got two more quick hits for you Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.co and code TPT.
1: back to the planet today everyone next up forever chemicals found contaminating 100 percent of florida's oysters tested by kristen hemingway janes of ecowatch
0: scientists from florida international university's institute of environment found that every single oyster from the biscayne bay in their 156 oyster sample was contaminated with pfas and paes we've talked about pfas or polyfluoroalkyl substances before on this show But we've never really touched on PAEs, which are phthalate esters. Both types of chemicals are toxic, present risks to both humans and wildlife. And here's why they're called forever chemicals. Do not degrade naturally in the environment.
1: Yeah, PFAs are mostly used in consumer and industrial products like fast food packaging, waterproof makeup, nonstick cookware, clothing, firefighting foam and other goods. PAEs are also frequently used in consumer goods like cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, food packaging, and detergents.
0: PFAs can cause kidney and liver damage and interfere with the functioning of the immune system, reproduction, human development, and vaccine efficacy.
1: A link between exposure to PAEs and obesity, diabetes, allergies, and asthma has been found in studies. PAEs also have been found to affect immune system function and reproductive health.
0: Last month, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency cautioned that PFAs are more hazardous than previously believed, even at levels that are undetectable. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is, again, deeply concerning because all of those products that we listed that PFAs and PAEs are commonly used in, those are pretty common things. (laughs) Like we're talking makeup, we're talking nonstick cookware, we're talking fast food packaging. Like those are all things that people interact with all the time.
1: Yeah, and I know actually when going back to that first study again, that PFAs were like the emerging uh, chemical that um, everyone started to get worried about. Even like three years ago, they started kind of really delving into this chemical, and like it ties back to the first one with glyphosate, where maybe that one is like the new emerging one because they've known about PFAS for a while now and yeah they're only kind of just giving like concrete statements that it's more ha- hazardous than previously believed so i guess those kind of things move at a slower pace than you would hope and like again it just ties into it where like how many other chemicals probably so many that we are exposed to on a daily basis are hazardous
0: yeah yeah and, and it's funny you mentioned the slow pace I, I think that's probably just because of the scientific method being mm-hmm. like hey this might be bad let's look into especially
1: it especially when I'm- like human health stuff, like takes a long duration to like figure out. And there's some, yeah. Labels.
0: And even when the research is starting to point towards that, I mean, you're going to have your naysayers. You're going to have your companies that are producing these chemicals mm-hmm. being like, no, hold on. That's not true. Here's a scientist that we paid a lot of money to tell you that you're wrong. And you have this whole like misinformation campaign to basically say, no, you could still use our products. Like screw the environment, screw human health. Our products are good.
1: No, that's crazy
0: so the reason that this got brought up with oysters is because oysters are really important and oysters are filter feeders so studying oysters can be a good way to figure out if a specific ecosystem is contaminated and how healthy that ecosystem is so in this case seeing as every single one of the 156 oysters tested was contaminated i'm gonna guess the biscayne bay has a pretty bad problem with pfas and paes In this case, also, the older the oyster, the more time it has to accumulate toxins like PFAs and PAEs. So, you know, brand new, fresh off the, the, I don't even know how oysters grow. I was going (laughs) to say fresh out of the egg. However an oyster forms, you know, the little ones aren't going to have as much toxin accumulation, even if their environment is completely exposed. So in this case, studying the adults makes a lot of sense. And oysters are beneficial for ecosystems that they live in by serving as kind of a water filter. So an adult oyster can actually filter as much as 50 gallons of water every single day, which is about as much water used for a 10 minute shower.
1: Yeah, and as you guys have mentioned before, uh, mussels were just coming back to the Hudson River and that's a good sign for the Hudson River's uh, ecosystem health. And I know that they hadn't been around for like 50 or so years since like the Clean Water Act
0: dude, I think it was a hundred. Yeah. Is it
1: 100? <laughs> it's like, yeah. So
0: something like that. I believe
1: that. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause a hundred years ago, there's probably an absurd amount of pollution going into the yeah. New York Harbor. And so I remember one of my professors was saying it was like almost like a billion dollar industry, even back then the, um, just fishing around New York city. And it just went to zero because you can't eat any of that. And, um, yeah, so this is threatening fisheries this is threatening a lot of people's well-being and
0: yeah and i know that when we did talk about the mussels we talked about oysters as well mm-hmm. uh don't expect to eat any new york city oysters anytime soon <laughs> and i think they said we're about like 60 to 70 years away from the hudson being clean enough but look the fact that the hudson river when you and i were growing up people were like oh you can't even swim in it yeah now the fact that we're saying maybe in half a century we'll be able to eat oysters from it The maybe is at least a little exciting.
1: Definitely, definitely. And now now you got to watch out for those Florida oysters as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do not eat any oysters from the
1: Biscayne Bay if you're listening and in Florida right now. On to our last quick hit of the week by NPR's Kai McNamee, who writes, A distillery is fighting invasive crabs by turning them into whiskey.
0: Yeah, so some lighter news to send you on your way this weekend. A New Hampshire distillery called Tamworth Distilling makes their crab trapper whiskey with green crabs caught off the coast of New Hampshire. Green crabs are invasive crustaceans that have plagued North America's marine ecosystem for over 200 years. They're incredibly abundant, and the hope here is that Tamworth will help curb the population and bring awareness to other creative solutions to the green crab problem.
1: Will Robinson, the product developer at Tamsworth Distilling, who had the idea for the project, said the crabs were cleaned and prepared just like any other crab you might order at a restaurant. He says that most people probably haven't heard of crab whiskey, and when they do, most are not interested in trying it. He adds, if you can get someone to taste it, most people change their tone.
0: The process starts by making a crab stock, then distilling that stock in a vacuum still. Later, they mix it with spices and combine it with a bourbon base. Each bottle of crab whiskey uses about a pound of green crabs, but the article points out that one distillery isn't going to make much of a dent in this population because of just how high their population is. For those wondering why this is a big deal, one green crab eats about 40 mussels per day, which, based on the math from our last quick hit, means that one green crab will offset the filtering of 200 gallons of water Every single day, assuming that mussels and oysters yeah. filter the same amount of water.
1: Yeah, and, and climate change is making things worse because these cra- crabs live much more comfortably in warmer ocean temperatures. Right now, there's no commercial incentive for crabbers to harvest green crabs on a scale large enough to make an impact, according to Dr. Gabriella Bratt of the University of New Hampshire.
0: She hopes that projects like Crab Trapper can raise awareness so that people might look into creating new products based on green crabs. All right, Dan, would you try Crab Trapper green crab whiskey?
1: Absolutely. And I want a crab roll of green crab right next to it so we could help take out this green crab population.
0: We'll do it. We'll do it one crab at a time. We'll have some green crab whiskey we'll have some, some crab rolls, me and you, buddy, (laughs) go take down this population and save our, our natives. It was like
1: hammers, you know, like when you're at a seafood restaurant, you're working. Yeah,
0: no, I mean, on a, on a serious note, I would absolutely try this. I mean, my, my motto generally is I'll try anything twice, but I, I mean, this is a no brainer for me. I love crabs. Whiskey is my go-to liquor when I'm responsibly drinking alcohol.
1: yeah, why not? Yeah, no, I'm sure it's good if they're making it. They're not going to make it. <laughs> it's not good.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we'll be back for July's interview episode.
1: Matt spoke with Charles Henry of the Council on Libraries and Information Resources about climate change impact on our cultural memory.
0: Until then, please go give the show a five star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod and send us an email at Planet Today Pod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden, and you can check out Nick Janusa's awesome music at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Nick produces our show. Nick makes all of our music. Go check out his stuff. It's all excellent. Special thanks to Dan Walsh for co-hosting today. Dano, where can our listeners hear more from you and the Vala Alta team?
1: You can hear more from the Valla Alta team at Vala underscore Alta at on Instagram and TikTok.
0: Awesome. We will link that in the show notes. Go show Dan some love. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vitz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone.